if you haven't met me, my name is Steve Stanton. I was a pastor here for just over four years, so good to see some really familiar faces. Uh, when I first uh, started working here, one of the things that we expressed in the hiring process was one day I'd love to plant a church. And Forest Gate and their elders had felt that same burden, that to grow the kingdom of God here in Colorado Springs, it would be good to plant other churches around town. And so we sort of entered into uh, me working here with some idea that at some point in the future, maybe we would plant a church. And in those four years, uh, we joined the Western Church Planting Network, and my call switched from assistant pastor of discipleship to uh, church planting pastor. And so we uh, launched Waypoint Church just under a year ago, last August, and uh, we thought it would be good. Matt and I had talked about swapping pulpits to kind of stay in touch with one another's congregations, and Bruce Harrington finally said, the thing you keep talking about, you should do it. <laughs> and... Uh, what a good opportunity while Matt's on sabbatical, too, to kind of come in and preach. So I'm also thankful for Kurt to kind of get to hang out with our congregation this morning uh, over at Waypoint. We meet just like this, but it's in a cafeteria. Um, it is very easy to remember the church is not a building, but a group of people when you're meeting in a cafeteria. And uh, we're just trying to get gathered together and hear the word together, drink coffee together, and um, do the same things a normal church does. We're just kind of getting structurally our feet uh, under us. So I'm gonna give a whole update about church planting at Sunday school, so I'd love for you to hang around for that. But today I'm here to talk about uh, Matthew 4, verses one through 11. This is the passage in the Gospels where Jesus goes into the wilderness to get uh, tempted. He took on humanity. Jesus came to earth, took on humanity, and with that humanity came limits. And he's being asked by the devil to overcome in his own strength those limits, but Jesus is gonna show us how our human limits are meant to kind of push us into God. So let's look now at Matthew 4, verses 1 through 11. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said to him, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to them, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, the angels came and were ministering to him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word that has been preserved for us today. Uh, that Jesus was meant to teach us a lesson through this. And so I pray that we would hear his words, we would hear his grace, we would hear your love for us in this text this morning. I pray for open hearts and open ears to your word. We pray in the name of Christ, amen. Uh, well, I don't know if you feel this way, but it seems like every other movie coming out nowadays is a Marvel movie. And it's because it's, it works. The last Spider-Man movie that, that came out was the number three top grossing movie of, of all time. 
Uh, and Spider-Man, he's an interesting hero because he's one of the few that's actually human, if you think about it. Even Superman isn't actually a man, right? He's some kind of alien from the planet Krypton. Uh, Wonder Woman was created by Zeus. Thor is a god under Odin from Asgard. But Spider-Man, he's, he's human. Human, now bitten by a radioactive spider. So he's got some strengths, but they're pretty understated powers if you really think about it. I mean, he can shoot webs. He's got quick reflexes, sticky hands, really good intuition. They name Spidey Sense. He's basically uh, just a human with some extra strong capabilities. And if you go on superhero, superhero Wikipedia pages, it will list as one of his weaknesses his humanity. He's human. He has limitations. He can't do it all. He gets stressed. He gets tired. He gets emotional. And you see this all through the movies. He goes in and out from being Spider-Man and pulling back from being Spider-Man. So when he loses his Aunt May, he can't, can't keep it up anymore. So he takes a break. When he breaks up with Mary Jane, his, his emotions get the best of him. He stops being Spider-Man for a time. He can't do it all because he has limits. He can't do it all because he's human. He has limitations because he's human. And the same is true for us. And maybe you need to hear that this morning. We can't do it all because we're human. And that's what we're seeing on display in this text. Something about Jesus's temptation. Jesus who comes down to earth, who puts on the limitations of humanity. He comes face to face now with the limitations of this humanity. And he's teaching us and he's showing us how we're supposed to live with those limitations. How we're supposed to live as humans in this world. He's going to face three temptations. It'll be our three points. He's tempted to solve his own problems. He's tempted to make his own plan. He's tempted to get his own reward. But Jesus doesn't bite on any of the temptations. He shows us instead how to live with these limitations. How they're good. How they're meant to turn us to rely on God in three ways. We'll learn that God is there to meet all of our needs, that God is the one who's meant to direct our paths, and that God is the one we should look to as our reward. So one thing to understand about these temptations when we talk about them is they're highly symbolic. Even the, um, they actually happened, but they mean something very deeply. So even the number of days is important. When you think of 40 days in the desert, just like Noah experienced 40 days of, of rain, just like uh, Moses, when they were being tempted, they're in the desert for 40 years. And it's this period where he's being tempted to sin, just like Adam and Eve in the garden were being tempted to sin. Whereas Adam and Eve failed at their test, Jesus passes this test in the desert. desert. So again, very symbolic. This is showing Jesus in humanity perfectly fulfilling the test, perfectly fulfilling the law, avoiding temptation by relying on God to be his provider. And so he's showing us, in a sense, how to do it as humans, how to face temptation as humans with limits, how to, to meet our needs in God instead of being tempted to do these things in our own strength. So here we are, Jesus is in the desert, um, be, being tested for these 40 days, and the Bible makes one of the biggest understatements of all times. It says, after not eating for 40 days, he was hungry. Yeah, I bet he was hungry. He was, he was weak, he was hungry, he was tired, he was vulnerable. And isn't it in, it in those times that we're most prone to temptation? So here in his weakest moment, the devil shows up to tempt him. Now, we don't talk much about the devil, but just briefly, elsewhere in the Bible, we learn he was an angel. 
He was one of the greatest angels. He, he wants to become greater than God, so he rebels against God. He takes a few other angels with him who become demons, and uh, they're, they're here standing and trying to foiling, foil God's plans, trying to mess up God's plans. And so here he is, again, on the stage, trying to mess up God's plan, trying to ruin God's mission to save all humanity through what Jesus is about to do. So for this first temptation to, to trip up Jesus, he goes right for Jesus' biggest need, this moment of his hunger. The, the devil tempts him and says, okay, turn this rock into food. You're needy. That's something about your humanity. You need food. You need to be provided for. Provide for yourself. He's saying, you've got this appetite. You're yearning to be full. Take it into your own hands. And Jesus answers him by saying, man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the Lord. See, Jesus is recognizing we have more than just physical needs. We have spiritual needs, unseen spiritual needs, things that only God could meet in our lives. Uh, when I was a kid, I really loved Swiss cake rolls. I still do. They're the perfect combination. Chocolate, shell, chocolate cake, wrapped up in that vanilla icing. I have this good memory as a kid. We would, uh, I went to a babysitter after school and would wait there until my parents got off of work. And the ritual was you sit down, she opens the packages of Swiss cake rolls and hands them all out and we got to eat it. And then I would go home and, and we'd have to be subjected to something normal for dinner like beef stew. And all I could think of was like, why would we eat this when there's Swiss cake rolls? Why would I eat eggs for breakfast when there's Swiss cake rolls? And my mom had to sit me down and say, you know, Steve, uh, you actually couldn't survive off Swiss cake rolls. You need vitamins and minerals and proteins and carbs. You would, you would die if you just ate Swiss cake rolls. Man does not live by Swiss cake rolls alone, but by vegetables and meat and bread. That's a similar thinking, right? We could see, think simply as a kid that all we need is these simple solutions to our physical needs, that we can achieve those solutions on our own, but man does not live by physical solutions alone. We are humans. That means we are mind, body, and soul. We are spiritual beings embodied. We have limits, number one. We can't provide everything we need, and we have spiritual needs, and we need God. We need spiritual nourishment from him. When we try and meet our own needs and our own strength, it's, it's like spiritual malnourishment. It's the equivalent of eating Swiss cake rolls all day long. They call it idolatry. An, an idol is something that we put in the place of God. It's serving a place in our life that God should serve. And so, for example, let's just think about this. I am meant to feel safe and secure in this world, even though it's sinful and broken and has turmoil because I believe God is sovereign, that he is in control of all things. But in our own strength, I can try and reach for solutions to find safety and stability by maybe controlling my circumstances. If I control my career and, and make just enough money, if I can get a side hustle, if I can get in control of things, if I can protect myself from being hurt from other people, if I can control my relationships, if I could just control every aspect of my life, I'll feel safe. And for a moment, it tastes sweet, right? For a moment, when we control things, we feel like things are safe and secure and stable. But the more we use control to find that feeling, it's like filling up on idols. We become bloated and sick and lethargic and unhealthy. At first, the uh, attempt to control all aspects of my life tastes good, but eventually they, 
stress me out because I'm trying to control everything uh, and I can't control everything and I'm ruining relationships because I'm trying to control the people around me. It, it makes me unhealthy. It makes me feel bad. So when, when Jesus is sitting here saying, man does not live by bread alone, but by the word of God, Jesus is saying we cannot meet our own needs, devil, but our needs are meant to be met in God. Yes, we're weak. Yes, we have limits. Yes, we are dependent on God, but the good news is we have him. We need God and we have access to him through his words. We know who he is through his words. We learn he is sovereign and loving in his word. We learn that our needs for safety and security are met when we learn that he is the kind of God who loves us and is caring for us and can calm the storms around us. And we can begin to rest more deeply in him as we were designed to, to have our needs met in him. Okay, so temptation number one, does not work. No surprise to us, but maybe the devil thought there was a chance. The devil amps up his game. He starts to get trickier now. So we, we've just seen Jesus, when he answered the first temptation, he quotes the Bible. In fact, in all three responses, Jesus quotes the Bible. He even says that we survive in this world by the words of God. So it's that important to him. And so the devil's picking up on this. And so he says, okay, you like the Bible so much, let me quote the Bible. And he takes him up to the top of the temple and he says, okay, now throw yourself off because the Bible says God's angels will come and care for you, that he will save you in this moment and protect you from death. Now we have to kind of understand, why is he doing this? Why would he take him to the temple to do this? Why would he want him to, what, what would it be accomplished by jumping off the temple and being saved? Well, think about it. All the Jewish people who were at this point rejecting Jesus, who were not understanding he was the Messiah, were not believing he came from God, would have been at the temple, would have been worshiping. So he's saying, Throw yourself off in front of these stubborn people and prove to them you're God. Prove to them you are from God. Prove to them you have power. Prove to them you're the Messiah. They'll make them see. Now God's, he, in a sense, he's telling Jesus to do this because he's saying, find your own way. Make your own path to prove you're the Messiah. But Jesus isn't fooled. He answers with scripture again, he says, you shall not put God to the test. And what he means by that is you do not tell God what to do. You don't say to God, you will do this. This is my plan. You will rescue me, and this is how I will prove I'm Messiah. God already had a plan to do that. God would reveal the divinity of Christ in the resurrection as he's raised after death on the cross. And the devil's saying, in a sense, that will take too long. Come up with your own plan. Take charge. Forge your own path. Prove them right now to these Jewish people. Make them see right now in this moment and skip the trial of the cross. And in some ways, he gets us to doubt in the same ways. As, as we kind of go through life, we could think, <clears throat> excuse me, does, does God know really what's best? I mean, I am pretty smart. I've made it to this point in life so far from coming up with my own plan. Could God really know what's best? Best. Let me chart a path forward, but I'm a Christian, so I'm still gonna trust that God is gonna be the one who gets me through, but he's gonna do what I'm asking him to accomplish the plan I'm asking. I have faith that he'll do exactly where I've decided is the best direction to go. But the problem is we're human. We have limits. I don't know what the future holds. I don't know what the results will be. To think that I could pick the best direction and path in my life over what God knows is a bit absurd. Uh, the movie 
Aladdin came to mind uh, when I was thinking about this. Remember, it's a love story. Aladdin's trying to capture the love of Princess Jasmine, and he finds this lamp, and the, the genie is gonna give him three wishes. So in his back of his mind, he's like, okay, I've got three wishes to try and get Jasmine to fall in love with me. And the genie even says, I can't make somebody fall in love with you. So he's gotta choose his own path. He's gotta pick, pick what he thinks is the best way to earn her love. But she had kind of already fallen in love with him, this poor boy that she found on the street who helped her when she was uh, trying to you know, wander in the city and have her free time. So he decides, I'm gonna become a fake prince, a fake man of wealth, of, of power, of importance. And it almost ruins it. She already liked him for him being his honest self. And now when she finds out he's a liar, that he chose to manipulate her and trick her, he almost loses it. And there's this interchange between the genie and him where the genie basically knows this is not a good plan. You're gonna trick her, like this isn't gonna work, but he's a genie, he has to follow through. He grants the wish and it almost leads to destruction. He's bound to do it, even though he knows this choice Aladdin's making is gonna hurt him. Now luckily, God is not like this, right? He does not have to say yes. Prayer isn't rubbing the magic lamp where we bind him to our will to help accomplish the plan we have already picked out. If he knows the direction we're headed is bad, he's good and loving and bigger than that and can help us find the right way. Imagine, really, if all of our prayer requests were answered yes. If God said yes to everything you prayed, if overnight God said yes to everyone who prayed to him, I think Tomorrow, there'd be probably about a million people who won the lottery. They'd all have to split the pot, win three bucks each. We've probably prayed some imprecatory prayers. You guys have been in the Psalms. Maybe you've learned what that word means. When you're praying for someone who hurts you to be hurt, maybe it's good God doesn't answer every prayer that we have. Honestly, can you imagine if we got exactly what we wanted? How many stories have you heard of people winning the lottery? and their life being destroyed because everything becomes about money. Their relationships dissolve into how much can you give me and how much are you holding back? Or for that person who's obsessed with work, who's losing their family because of this obsession, losing their health because they're driving too hard to one goal, who sits down at night, who prays to God, Lord, give me the next promotion. Give me the next harder thing not knowing he's praying for extra hours of his obsession to be granted to him that will eventually lead to a divorce, not knowing the promotion is actually this idol for them where the achievement and money they're receiving from their job has become bigger than God. What if, what if God's plan was for them to lose their job, to realize how bad it had gotten so that they can get their family back, so that they could slow down and reconnect to God who made them and loved them and pursued them to the point of sending his son to the cross to die for their sins. See, we don't know what the best path forward is. We're limited, we're human. We can often pick the path that will ruin us. So Jesus is saying to us, as he models it, we don't come up with the plan and trust God to accomplish it. We don't jump off the temple and tell God when he's gonna save us. Instead, we trust to look to God for our direction. Jesus trusts God's plan. It takes him towards suffering. It takes him to the cross. That's what real trust is, isn't it? When we give up completely, even the control of the direction and the location we're headed, even if it's taking us to places we don't necessarily desire, we trust that God knows what's best, loves us, and is growing us through it. 
So Jesus looks to God's word again for the answers. And so that's the place we go to, to the Bible to help guide and direct every step. It helps us to know why he saved us, what he's gonna do through his saved people and how to step forward into faith. In some ways, it directs our steps as we read his word, that we learn we are a renewed people for a purpose, to go into the world and to bring restoration from sin. It directs our paths. So the devil's first two attempts end in failure. He started to get you know, manipulative and tricky in the second one, so you'd think maybe he's just gonna get super tree. He's gonna really spin this third one to get Jesus tricked. But instead, what you see is, is more just blatant and bold. He doesn't trick Jesus. Instead, he just flat out offers him a bribe. He takes him to the top of these mountains, and he basically says, look, give up worshiping God, and I will give you what you want. I will give you the kingdom. All this that you see, all this glory will be yours. He's saying, I'll give you everything. Now, we need to understand something about this. Jesus is going to get the kingdom if he goes to the cross. The Bible says after his resurrection, Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. He is now ruler over all things. You read it in the memory verse there in Hebrews that Jesus gets the kingdom. But what's, what the devil's really asking is, why did he go to the cross? Why did he save the humanity? Was it to get the kingdom? Was that his primary motivation? Or was it to save all humanity and all mankind to be obedient to the Father's plan of salvation and by consequence, get the kingdom? He's being asked about his motivations. Why is he doing it? Is it for the reward or is the reward just a side effect of him pursuing God's plan? And so we're asked a similar question. Do you obey God to get something out of it or do you obey God because of your relationship with him? Your faith, that obedience will lead to a flourishing life. You could ask the question, what do you desire most? Do you desire the benefits of obedience primary or do you desire primarily God and benefits become secondarily? It's sort of like a grandfather who really loves watches and you know, has invested his whole life to get this Rolex and he wants to pass on his most beloved Rolex to uh, one of his grandchildren. And so he's trying to determine you know, which one will really appreciate this like I do. And so if he asked me, do you want this Rolex? I'd say, yeah, I know how much it's worth. I would love that Rolex because it costs a lot of money. Uh, what I'm really saying if I answered that way is I love the money that comes from the Rolex, not I appreciate and see the value and the beauty of this piece. I appreciate it for what it is. Do you want God for the benefits or do you want him from the relationship? In some ways, the devil's asking Jesus a similar question. It's like he's handing him the cash. This is what the Rolex is worth. Just take the cash. And Jesus goes, I don't want the cash. I want the Rolex. I appreciate the beauty of the Rolex. He says, I don't want the kingdom, I mean, I'll, I'll get the kingdom, but what I want is union and relationship with God. Yeah, I want the kingdom because that's part of my call to be with God. He's asking about Jesus's heart in this question, and so Jesus says, no, that's not how it works. You shall worship the Lord your God, and he gives this answer because that's what we're made to do. We're made to worship God. We're made to be in communion with God. So you could gain all the things you desire in your heart, but you would still feel lost. There would be a hole without God. And the truth is, on the other side, we could lose a whole lot, but if we had God, we would have satisfaction still. We would have joy, we would have comfort, we would have peace and security if we had God. 
I don't know if you've ever read this book. Uh, it's kind of a children's book. It's also kind of a poem. It's called The Giving Tree. My mom used to um, read it to me when I was a kid to try and awake the inner poet within me. It never woke up because I don't think it was there. Um, but I remember the story. There, there was a boy in a tree. The boy comes. He swings on the branches. He plays in the, in the tree. Uh, he eats the apples. He's full from the apples. He rests in the shade, he finds comfort and, and you know, shelter from storms in the tree. He loves the tree, it says, and the tree loves him. They're finding joy from one another. But then something happens. The boy begins to get older. He grows discontent. He wants more than just the tree. So he goes to the tree and he asks the tree, uh, what I really want is money. Money will bring me satisfaction. And the tree says, take my apples. So he takes the apples, he sells them, he gets money but he comes back dissatisfied. So he says, maybe it wasn't money. Maybe I need other people. I need some roots down. I need a family. I need a wife and kids and a house. So he goes to the tree and the tree says, take my branches, cut them down, build a house with them. But once again, the boy is unhappy after years with his family. He comes back and says, I think I missed it. I think what it was is I needed to travel the world. I needed to have adventures and explore. And so the tree says, cut down my trunk and make a boat with it. And the boy's still sad, even through his travels. And so eventually the boy grows old into a man and realizes he just needs a place to rest after this life of striving. And so the tree says to him, all that's left is the stump, to sit down on my stump, be with me again, and find your rest. And the point is, right, the boy had what he needed all along. The tree offered him what he wanted. He, it offered him rest and fun and food, provision, shelter, but he wanted more. He took from the tree. He cut from the tree. He left the tree. But he had it all right there. We have God. We have the tree. All our needs and desires can be met in him. We have full provision from him like the apples. We have joy like the branches provided. We have security like the shade. We have it all. But just like the boy, we're tempted to run from our very source to find it elsewhere. The truth is I even pray to God for these things that will take me away from him. I'll pray for the apple money and the house branches and the boat trunk. I asked him to give me those things so I can run and find fulfillment from him. I say, you know, God, achievement is really where I find my sense of value. Yes, I know that I'm valuable because you're the creator of the universe and you love me and you sent your very son to die for me, but sometimes that doesn't feel like enough. I would love to supplement that gospel message with more achievement. So help me, Lord, achieve that next goal. I love that feeling when I've done something great and I can feel accomplished and worth something to this world. Would you give me that? Rather than deepening the value I experience from you, would you give me more things in this world to get that feeling apart from you? Would you give me that, Lord? Or I might pray, God, I'm so worried about money. That health bill is coming, that new house that's being built is getting more and more expensive as lumber prices go up. God, that is what's gonna make me feel safe in this world. Yes, I know you care for the lilies of the field and the birds of the air, and you even love and care for me, but I really am tired of being so dependent and so weak on you. If you could just give me money, then I could stand on my own without you. I, I, I don't wanna feel weak and needy. I would feel rather much safer if my bank account was full. Can you give me that full bank account instead of a deeper trust that you're my provider, even in hard times? Now, obviously, I don't say those words in my prayers, 
Uh, maybe it'd be better. The Psalms that you guys have been going through are very honest with their emotions. God wouldn't be upset if we gave our real emotions and feelings to him. But it's just revealing the heart that often we're running away from the tree when we have something from God. So we should be praying more deeply to him that he would be present in our lives, that he would be our source of joy and comfort and shade and safety and security that we're meant to desire. Now, I am so glad that God is not like the tree, right? Just like the genie who's forced to grant bad wishes, he is not like the tree who's forced to destroy itself as we continue to make bad requests where we run from him and he enables our running from him. He is not like that. He does not allow us to go after hollow distractions that will make us even more dissatisfied like the boy is over and over and over. Instead, he would say to the boy, no, I remain this full tree, return to me. Come to me. We will always have this tree we can run back to, this full tree, this source of joy and comfort. But in another sense, maybe this is coming to mind, he is like the tree. God gives it all for us. God becomes a stump for us. Jesus goes to the cross for us. He dies in our place. He becomes dust so we don't have to become dust. Here's the difference. He doesn't give himself up. He doesn't become the stump so we can have money and a house and travel. He gives himself up so we can be returned to the tree, so we can go back to God. Jesus makes a way through his death and resurrection for us to find full rest and joy and provision in God our Father again. That's the difference. See, if, I, if I'm honest with myself, just to kind of wrap up here, I don't like having weaknesses. I don't like having limitations. I don't like the idea that even if I can earn bread, it's not enough, that I'm dependent on someone else for my very survival, that I'm dependent even on God. I don't like not knowing the future. I don't like not being in control of the plan. I wanna know where we're going and what we're doing. I don't like that I have to figure out that what steps God might have me do uh, and search the scriptures for that. When I see my neediness, when I see challenges in my life, my knee-jerk reaction that's even been trained in me from the Air Force and society is to buckle up, work harder, overcome weaknesses rather than admit those weaknesses and see they were meant to drive me to God. I forget those weaknesses and limitations were a good design built into me to remind me I'm dependent on God my Father. You see, when God created the world, this is what he did. He separated the land from the sea, the sea from the sky. He was building in limitations to his creation. He even says to Adam and Eve, gives them good guiding limitations to not eat of a certain tree, but Creation has been trying to shake off those limitations from the beginning, right? Storms breaking through Adam and Eve, not wanting to be limited by what they could eat. So when they throw off these good, guide, good guiding limits God gave them, when they get rid of the guardrails, they end up in the ditch. But Jesus, he took on those limits. He took on those guardrails. He took on humanity to show us they were good, to show us in that desert how to live with those limitations, not to buckle up and get strong, but instead to run to God's word, to run to God as provider, to trust in God's plan, and to realize all your needs can be met in him. You find him, and you don't go to God for the benefits of going to God. You go to God for himself and receive all these things. So we're to embrace our human limits. We're to embrace our dependency and run to God, the one who became the cut-up stump the one who was nailed to the cross so we could run back to the tree, 
to find our joy and comfort and safety from the place we were always supposed to get it, from God. Amen? Let me pray. Lord, we thank you for this message, um, and again, for even the trial Jesus went through, not only to actually accomplish, accomplish full obedience to the law, to live this sinless life, to pass this righteousness onto us, but also to hold it in scripture, to show us how to live in this world dependent on you. I pray that, that our hearts would really hear the call to return back to you, our provider. We pray this all in Christ's name, amen.